I know today that we were mentioning those that we are praying for that are going through a grieving process. And as of the result of last year, we went through some, some difficult grieving times together as a body. Um, and uh, it began to circulate in my spirit that I wanted to do a series of messages on, on what happens five minutes after you die. So I'm going to be starting in the 1st of March a series called Beyond. And uh, we're going to be talking about things like welcome to eternity and what is it like to die, the difficult doctrine of hell, what's the Bible say about heaven, what's resurrection going to be like, that we'll talk about the judgment seat of Christ and the white throne judgment and what can we take with us, what will we leave behind. What will it be like for us to rule and reign with Christ? And what's the scripture mean when it says that there'll be a new heaven and a new earth? I just have enjoyed the study for the past several weeks just in preparing myself for this series of Beyond. Maybe it won't interest you as much as it's interested me, but we are living in a world, but we're not of this world which clearly indicates to us scripturally that there is something more real than this just beyond the veil. And we're going to take a look at what the scripture has to say about that, and I believe that we will learn together <clears throat> what is beyond, what's beyond this. So I hope that you will be interested in joining us starting the first week of March on that series. Today I want to talk about a topic of how a servant thinks. How a servant thinks. 36 years ago when Cindy and I were engaged, my folks were in Africa and we were college students at Evangel University and much like the college students today that are looking forward to a meal that's not in the cafeteria, it was coming Thanksgiving time and, and my dad has three older sisters and an older brother. He's the youngest of five and he said, it would, it would be wise for you and Cindy to go to Baton Rouge, Louisiana for Thanksgiving meal because I know it'll be worth your while. So we went, and uh, I was born in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. My dad is, is from the South, and so there, for those of you that may have known, there's a different culture in the South than in the North. And uh, I remember going into my aunt's house, and the smell makes your mouth water. And I understand it's 20 minutes to 12, so I'll be really cautious here. <laughs> the pies and the turkey, and the gravy, and whew, I'm in dangerous territory here. But it came time for us, the meal was ready, the aunts announced, it's all ready, and we went to the table to sit down, and the table was long, there's a lot of us dements, and as we sat down, Cindy sits down next to me, and my dad's oldest sister, who's 10 years older than he is, looked at Cindy, this northern girl, and she's going, oh, no, 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 honey, no. And Cindy looks at her, and she goes, we don't eat with the men. <clears throat> and she pulls the chair out and helps her up, and she goes, we serve. She goes, we will serve all of the men, and then after the men have had their Thanksgiving meal, then we ladies will sit down and have our own. And I learned about nonverbal communication. Because I'm grinning like a polecat. I'm looking at her going, yeah. 
And she looked at me with one of these views that indicated to me that we were never going to live in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. <laughs> and uh, she humbled herself that day and served me. And we have often talked about that. The Thanksgiving that I will only enjoy once in my life. It leads me to a passage of scripture today that, honestly, I, I've never, in 35 years of ministry, I've never preached on this passage of scripture because I don't like it. Um, and I think that you will understand why as we get into it, but there's some really fascinating things that I believe the Lord wants to teach us today. And it's in Luke chapter 17, in verses 5 through 10, of how a servant thinks. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. And then there's these words of Jesus. Suppose one of you had a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Would he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Would he not rather say, prepare my supper and get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink, and then after that, you may eat and drink? Would he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything that you were told to do, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Father, I pray that you would take the truth from this passage of Scripture and that you would apply it within our lives in the way that each of us need to see this as you help us to understand what a servant thinks and how that will work its way out within our life as we yield to you and why we can trust you to be a great master. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. To be honest with you, I don't like this passage of Scripture. And some of you may agree with me, there are days when Jesus blesses me, and there are days when Jesus bothers me. This passage of Scripture is one of those that, frankly, it bothers me because it offends my Western 21st century sensibilities. It's a story of position. It's a story of power. A story of the master exploiting another human being, his servant, for personal gain. The scripture indicates to us that this servant has been out in the field plowing all day long or chasing sheep all day long. They likely get to the evening meal time and they are sweaty and they are hot and they are tired and they likely are bothered. And when they come rushing back in after taking care of the responsibilities of this all day long, they come into the fact that the master says, now I need you to clean yourself up real quick and get into the kitchen and you need to make my meal and you need to serve me. And then after you have done all of this, then after I've been served, then you can take care of yourself. As you look through this passage, you'll also discover that it's also a story of lack of gratitude. Jesus asked if the servant should be thanked for preparing the master's meal first, and of course the answer to that is no, because the servant does what the master commands. And personally, I like being appreciated. Any of you feel that way? 
Do any of you like being thanked? Man, you guys are way better servants than I am. It bothers me that you don't find anything in this text about human rights, equality, or fairness. All we find is the gruesome word, duty. And when you have done what you were commanded, then the dutiful servant is to say, we are unworthy servants and we've only done what was our duty. Now, in our Western culture, we are conditioned to think that we are entitled, that, that we're not bound by duty. And most of us, uh, because of where we were raised and how we were raised, um, we, we look at a text like this and it just seems vastly unfair as we're interpreting it. We, we see it only through the eyes of the lenses that we've been raised with within our culture. And I want to be fair in interpreting the text. We need to realize that this text was not written to 21st century Westerners. It was written to 1st century people whose culture was much different than our culture. And it's important that we understand some of the things that bother us about this story did not bother the disciples at all because it was in their context. And there was nothing about this that was surprising or out of the ordinary to them. It's a typical description of how a servant thought and how a servant acted. Now, for those of you that have had an opportunity to maybe go to third world countries in, in missions adventures... You perhaps have had an opportunity to talk to some of our missionaries that will tell you that in those countries, if you were to go out into the street in the morning and you see a street sweeper and you were to thank them for doing their job, they would stop you and say, oh, no, 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 please don't thank me for this because I'm only doing my job. I'm only doing my duty, and so to be thanked for doing your duty would be something that they wouldn't think of. And so Jesus and his disciples 2,000 years ago in ancient Near Eastern culture had the same mindset. So the disciples were not surprised by what Jesus said. But here's the key. The disciples weren't bothered by the description of the poor servant. What really bothered them was that it was Jesus' suggestion that in order for them to grow in faith, that they were supposed to be the servants. It was good enough for him to tell the story, but when Jesus looked at them and he says, you need to have the mind and the activities and be the servants, that's what bothered them. They would have much rather been the masters of the story than the servants of the story. And as they realized by the end of the, uh, the story when they were talking about, Lord, increase our faith, they recognized that they wanted to be the power people. Lord, increase our, our faith so that we do great things and people will look at us in a certain avenue or a certain way. And the Lord was talking, you've got the power of faith. What you don't have is the corresponding nature of a servant to work it out in balance. And he wanted them to be level-minded. And he told them that in order to have great power, you have to have the disposition with which that power could be exercised, which only comes through the mindset of a servant. Faith with that kind of power can be abused if you're not careful. And Jesus told them that they needed to act like servants and not masters and to execute their power of faith, but to execute it from the position of serving people. Now, I recognize that there are some of you today who probably have been taken advantage of in your life. 
probably have experienced times where you felt unappreciated or you've been hurt by exploitive top-down leaders who were more concerned about their well-being than they were about serving your well-being. And so I know that today as we approach this text that it, it might be that you look at this through the lens of some pain within your own life. But I need you to know that this story is not meant to describe leadership as it should be in the kingdom but that it is describing the way that we can humble ourselves before the Lord and approach Him in everything that we do. The Lord tells us the first will be last, the last will be first. And so it doesn't teach us about masters of the kingdom telling everybody else what to do, but a servant's nature that develops within us. If you have your bulletin, there's a couple of points in there that you may want to just jot down some notes on. One of the first things that we deal with as we look at this scripture is we recognize that we're living in an age of a me-first problem. The scripture says, suppose you had a servant that was plowing in the field. Would you not say to that servant when he comes from the field, come now and sit down? No, you wouldn't say that. Verse 8 says, will he, not, will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterwards you will eat and drink. Now from this particular text, we learn two things. First, we learn about a servant's mindset from it, he says, and the first thing we know is that the master's needs are more important than the servant's needs. The master's needs are more important than the servant's needs. Now, I admit to you that we live in a culture that Americans don't buy into this mindset anymore, at least not very well. Because in our culture, what we're constantly struggling in is the fact that we are told that you are number one and that you deserve to have the best from everybody around you and that your life is like a movie and you're the stars and everybody else in the world are just extras and they're there to, to support you and to keep the spotlight on you. And as a result of that, even in the church, we enter in with the mindset of our culture that allows us to think that we are in a me-first society. It's as old as the human heart. Adam and Eve had this problem, which is why they took the fruit in the first place, because they thought, if we do, then we will be like God. I, want, I don't want to miss out on anything that could belong to me. And so they fed the lie, and they fed themselves, and they resulted, uh, they reaped sin, because they wanted life according to their terms and not God's. We read in the story of Jesus traveling with his disciples to Capernaum, and the disciples, these these disciples whom God hand-selected to walk with him for these three years begin to fight among themselves about who was the best of the twelve. These great men of God begin to suffer with the me-first attitude, and then if that wasn't bad enough, in Matthew 20, 20, James and John get their mom involved. If Jesus won't listen to me, he'll listen to my mom when she comes and falls down in front of Jesus and says, oh, you know my boys are better than everybody else. If you just elevate them, one under your right, one under your left, just, you know, for me, Jesus. The me first attitude even affects the way we pray. Because we use terms in prayer such as this, Lord, I command in the name of Jesus that you do such and such. Or, Lord, I'm coming to you today, and I'm asking that you would do this for me or for them. I'm, I, Lord, I, I'm standing on your word and the promises, and in that promise it says this, and so, Lord, 
do this according to your word. Or Lord, if you love me, you'll do this. Or if your word is true. In other words, we have reduced our prayer life many times to pretending that God is a genie in a bottle and we just want to rub it. And then when he comes out of the bottle, we say, now you're here and I want you to give me my three prayer wishes. And we cannot conceive that the master's needs are more important than our needs. And it's the ultimate form of idolatry. The idolatry of self in great America. But Jesus comes. And in a passage of scripture that bothers our western sensibilities. He begins to dismantle the cultural belief that we are the most important. And the gospel tells us that serving our master. The Lord Jesus Christ and his needs should be our priority in everything that we do. Now as I looked at that honestly it began to beg the question for me. And I spent some time thinking about this. If, if I'm to serve the needs of the master, and my master is God, what could he possibly need from me that I can provide? What could an all-sufficient God need? And how do his needs outweigh my needs or your needs? And as I begin to examine this, I believe that the answer is he has one self-appointed need, and that is that he says, I demand help with the harvest. I demand help with the harvest. That's why he told us to pray, the harvest is great. So pray for workers. Pray for servants to go out into the harvest. His self-imposed need is that he needs help with the harvest. And his needs are more important than our needs. So when Jesus saves us from our sin... Part of that is that he's saving us from ourselves. And he saves us from our selfishness and, and what the whole world is declaring that the world should revolve around us. And so what we see is that when you are your own God, you are obnoxious. When you think that the world revolves around you and that everybody should bow to your needs, you become obnoxious. And it's difficult to be around people like that and it's difficult to like people. But if we understand that God frees us from ourselves so that we could live for something bigger, we come to realize that our mission and our purpose is a far greater desire and our bigger need than our own needs ourselves. God needs you to be involved in the harvest. One of the issues that we have is thinking about God's needs being bigger than ours and how he provides for us in those things is that we develop one of two views of God within our life. And it affects the way that we respond to him because part of what God was trying to do in this verse was to redefine what his provision looks like in our life. And the two views that you can develop of God is that he is either a God of abundance or he is a God of scarcity. He's a God of abundance or he's a God of scarcity. And here's the way that plays out within our life. You're either a person that looks at the glass and it's half full or you're a person that looks at the glass and it is half empty. Many people view their, their, their service of God from the perspective that God is a God that just has a little bit of stuff and if you don't get yours when you need it, then there's not going to be enough for you in the end. The me-first attitude, the self-protectingness begins to rise out of this. And we have this instinct that when God blesses and he does something, that we have to hang on to it rather than serve others with it. In his book, Bernie May from Wycliffe writes about the Aztec Indians in southwestern Mexico. And he says, there's a peculiarity to their culture. 
He said, if you were to go among the Indians and you find a skilled worker, somebody who may be really, really good with work, uh, working with it, and you compliment them on what they do, they will back away from you. Because they know that after compliments generally come things like, can you teach me how to do that? And in their culture, because they believe that, that the God they serve only gives them so much, they believe that if they teach you how to do something, then they have lost something to you. That they have given something that is unreturnable. As a result of that, it even affects the way they parent their children. Because they believe that they are only given so much love and so that if there is a second child that is born, the first child cannot be loved in the same way because now the love has got to be divided and given to another person and so there's something that's being withdrawn from them. It's a scarcity mentality and we look at that and understand that many of us live in that same fear that we will somehow lose what we have if we don't protect it from people and from God. But the kingdom ethic is this. When we become servants of Christ, we are called to live by an abundance or an ethic of abundance. And here's the way this plays out for us in Scripture. Look, if you would, at Luke chapter 6, verse 38. Jesus says, Give. Now it could stop right there, and we would get the point. But it moves on to this. Jesus says, give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, it will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Now, I want to ask a really, really honest question. How many of you have ever thought, maybe you didn't verbalize it, maybe you did, but ever thought, if somebody would just give me a winning lottery ticket, I would bless God like you can't believe. I thought I was the only one that lived in that level. <clears throat> Lord, if you give me a million dollars, grace will be beautiful. And by your show of hands, we, we indicate that our minds go there from time to time. The scripture, however, turns things around and, and the master looks at the servant and he didn't say, what I give to you then, I want you to give back to me. He says, you start by giving. Well, that's not fair. Aren't you supposed to give us something first and then we, no, you start by giving. Now, in terms of, of what you give as far as energies and service and gifts and skills and finances, the scripture very clearly indicates to us that our God is a God of abundance but requires that we take a step of faith first and then he says this, and the measure by which you give is the scoop of how much ice cream I give you back. It's not exactly in those words but I love ice cream so I'm just... <laughs> if you will start by a mindset of a servant who says my, my master is one of abundance and so I will give never worrying about protecting what I've got because I know that once I give the master's going to look at me and say it's that scoop size that you have given out that I now will be able to bless back into your life and all of the things that you need but you must start by either a spirit of believing that you have a God of scarcity or a God of abundance. The measure you start with determines the size that God will pour into your life. 
But here's the amazing concept that Jesus said. By which scoop you give away causes you to step into the dimension of whether or not you believe that you serve a God of abundance or a God of little. You're going, okay, now I see why you don't like this passage of Scripture. Because it begins to put on us as the heart of a servant that we must respond with what we know here about God, but sometimes it doesn't reach here what we know about God. So then he adds verses like this in Matthew 6.33, just so we make sure that we get the full context. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Do you notice first that I'm going to give you a bunch, and then I want you to do with it that would provide the kingdom? No, he says, you in your life as a servant, you start with nothing, whatever you're given, seek first the kingdom of God with it, and then I will once again measure into your life the scoop by which you have given. But make sure that I am sought first in everything. Because what he understands is that a servant will always rightly prioritize the master's needs and his mission and his self-imposed needs to have harvest laborers when they step into the abundance of God. But if you act in self-protection, you cannot be a good servant, and you will never think like a servant. In his book on spiritual leadership, J. Oswald Sanders said, the true spiritual leader seeks to put more into life than he will ever expect to take out of it. The true spiritual leader will seek to put more into life than they will ever expect to take out of it. Can, can you imagine what the church would be like, what our, our culture would be like, if we as Christians, as we as servants of God, would begin to really live like that? where we step into the dimension of the generosity of God and, and rather than protecting what we have, we allow God to dismantle that and start living in abundance with the people around us and living with an abundant mindset of I will serve with everything I've got so that I can begin to see the hand of God at work in me and through me. So the first thing we learn from this text is that the master's needs are more important than the servant's needs. The second thing we learn from this text is the servant's life is a crucified life. Our obedience is more important than our rights. Jesus does not say the master thanked the servant. We think the servant had a right to be appreciated for his, servants, for his service. But there's nothing in this text that speaks about rights or entitlements. Instead, Jesus said, so you also, when you have done everything you were told... You should say, hey, I'm just an unworthy servant and I'm just doing my duty. Rights are addicting. My right to be appreciated. My right to be treated as I should be treated. My right to be paid what I'm worth. My right to have the last word. My right to be respected. But these rights mitigate the mindset of a servant. Because a servant realizes that his or her obedience is more important than his or her entitlements. And the scripture gets a little bit more specific with this when he talks about the biblical concept of a crucified life in, in Galatians chapter 2. 
Because when you were crucified with Christ, you died, and all of your sinful habits and all of the tendencies of that sinful nature died as well. And here's the way that the verse is quoted for us in 2.20. I am crucified with Christ. I want you to look at those words, with Christ, because it's a key to this. Because what Christ is proclaiming to us is not a life that he has not lived. He left the glories of heaven and all of the power and all of the majesty and all of the royalty there to enter into humanhood so that he could walk as we walk and not as a power figure here, but as a servant of all servants here. So Jesus is merely saying, when I've come into your life and I've been declared as your God and as your Lord, if you want to be like me, then you are going to have to learn what it means to live a crucified life. And serve others because that's the model that I gave. In his book on discipleship, Miles Stanford listed a number of spiritual leaders in 300 years. People like George Mueller and D.L. Moody and Jonathan Goforth and Amy Carmichael. And he said, as I examined their lives, this is what I learned. It took these Christian leaders an average of 15 years in their personal spiritual growth to move from the concept of working for Christ to a place where Christ was working through them. And there's a big difference there. It's a huge difference. Because when you have come to a place where Christ is working through you, you have become a vessel, you have become a servant, where what happens to you is no longer the most important thing, but what Christ can do through you into the lives of others. And that's all you live for is that I might be a vessel that God can touch other people's lives through. You no longer sit down at the end of the day and write out a list for God of everything that you did for him so that you can be rewarded for it because your mindset has changed to the point where I know that my God is a God of abundance and I know that he will scoop into my life more than what I need, but I just need to make sure that I'm a vessel, a servant that he can work through. So don't think about your rights. Those died with Christ. We have his life in us and the things that once held us back, the sin and idolatry and the self-promotion and the self-protection have been put to death and crucified with him and we are finally free in him to be and think like a servant thinks. In conclusion, as our keyboardist, please come. I was at a Chi Alpha retreat a number of years ago and Dr. Jim Bradford was speaking. He's our General Secretary, he's a rocket scientist. He views the word through a different lens than most of us. He was talking about when he was a student at the University of Minnesota and he became a a student pastor, a Chi Alpha leader to the students there. And he said, we got a big house. And he said, there was nine of us guys that decided to live in this house together. He said, we decided that we were going to live in such a way that Christ would be honored in everything we did. So we would wake up at 6 in the morning and we'd pray together. We'd have a Bible study together at night before we went to bed. And three times a week we would invite friends from the outside that maybe didn't know Christ. But we'd invite them in and we would serve them dinner. And he said, the interesting thing, he says, most of these men were brand new believers. And so when it came time to pray for the meal, you know. Most of us, we may hold hands and quietly thank God. He goes, 
man, these guys were standing up and raising their hands, and he says, it became a praise session. Oh, Lord, I thank you for everything you've given us. And he said, around the table, he said, we could freak out our guests sometimes with that kind of prayer blessing. He says, but I begin to see a passion to serve grow in those guys. He said, I remember as we began just to serve each other in some unique ways. He said, one time I had a, a important test. I wasn't able to clean my room or make my bed. And I came home that afternoon. And as I walked to my room, my room had been cleaned. My bed was made. And I walked out and the guys were sitting in the common room. And he goes, hey, who did that? One of the guys raised his hand and said, hey, I just, I just wanted to do that for you. I just knew what was going on today. I just wanted to bless you, just to let you know you're loved. He said, another guy Another particular time came in when he was taking a nap and grabbed his keys, went out and just had his oil changed in his car for him. He says, we begin to try to live a lifestyle that way of what can we do to bless those around us and serve those around us. And he said, I begin to experience the love of God in brand new dimensions. The more I begin to serve people, the more I begin to feel a closeness with God because I had finally got in touch with God the servant nature that Jesus wants us to have. But our Western sensibilities have to be dismantled in order for that to take place. When I dream about what kind of body God wants to build, sometimes we have to start with passages of Scripture that bother us so that we can come to the place of understanding that being a servant of God is what He desires. Servant of God means a servant of each other. This morning I'm going to conclude this service by having an installation service for the two deacons that you just elected to serve alongside of me this week. I couldn't think of a better way to talk about servanthood than installing some new servants. And I'm going to ask Chris and Lindsay Salvage and Dave Lincoln if they would please come and stand in front of me. chapter 6 it says in those days when the number of disciples was increasing the 12 gathered all the disciples together and said it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom we will turn this responsibility over to them and we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word and they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them 1 Timothy chapter 3, the scripture says, Deacons are to be men worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must hold the deep truths of faith with a clear conscience. They must be tested, and if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, their wives are to be women worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. Deacon must be the husband of but one wife and must manage his children and household well. Those who will serve will gain an excellent standing with great assurance in their faith in Jesus Christ. I am asking our other deacons and their wives and our staff if they would please come and stand alongside. 
going to read you a charge. At the end of it, if you agree, you can reply with God's help, I will. You have heard these admonitions from Holy Scripture, and you have been selected by the membership of this congregation to serve it by helping your pastor and the staff and the spiritual calling and responsibilities that the Lord has given to us. Are you willing to fulfill this ministry to the body of believers under the leadership of its pastor, realizing that you will be held accountable before God by the way that you discharge your duties as trustees and uphold the spiritual qualifications of being called out as a deacon? I'm going to ask Pastor Mark and Pastor Jeff if you would please each anoint one of the deacons in front of you and I'm going to ask our other deacons and their spouses if they would stand around and congregation would you please stand with me we are blessed to have had four names presented to us at our business meeting last week every one of them marvelously qualified to serve this congregation but we believe that God taps people on the shoulder for such a time as this because he knows what lies ahead of us and he knows the skills and abilities that he wants to withdraw from each of these families so would you stretch a hand forward as we anoint them and install them into the office of deacon Father and our God we recognize today that the thought of the word that we have approached is one of taking a servant's place. And not just taking the place, but also thinking like a servant. I recognize, Lord, that in the lives of these men and their families, that there will be times when the call of duty will interfere with family time. There will be moments when things will take place that will remove them from things that they may have wanted to do, but Lord, they have chosen to serve you. And so I pray that over this term that they serve, that you, O oh God, would strengthen them. That you would add the element of the anointing of the Holy Spirit to their intellect, to their creativity, to their problem-solving abilities. Touch their homes, I pray. And God, when we gather together within our board meetings, that there will be things that will come from their minds and their hearts and their mouths that they will look back and say, that had to be God. That had to be God as they are used as vessels to elevate your name within this church and to help the vision that you have given to me move forward as we touch this community. I ask, oh God, that you would keep them in health, I pray. Surround them. Keep them from temptations that would draw them away, Lord God, I pray. And build within this board, I pray, a unity that is built on you and you alone. Lord, we are your servants and we unashamedly declare you are our master. So you lead us and you guide us and we will follow because we know that you are a God of abundance. And you, Lord, will bless. We install them now in the name of Jesus. And everyone said... Amen and amen. Here's how we're going to conclude this morning. I'm going to ask them to stand here in the front, and I'm going to ask that you come by and high-five them, hug them, 
knuckle knock, whatever you desire to do, but I want you to greet them today before you go. May God bless you. Have a great day in Christ. Thank you.